I'm Jay Caruso, and this is Closer Consideration. We've all heard of civil asset forfeiture. When we hear it, we probably picture law enforcement officers seizing suitcases full of cash, exotic cars, expensive boats and mansions purchased with money made from illegal activity. It's natural to think that way. Unfortunately, it's not always like that. Too many cases, the person merely happens to be someone who has cash or a vehicle that quote-unquote looks suspicious. They fit a profile of some kind of of someone who is doing something illegal. And as a result, law enforcement can then take that cash or that property. And that leads to an expensive recovery process. My guest today is Jason Pye director of the Rule of Law Initiative at the Due Process Institute, and he's going to take us through civil asset forfeiture, the details, what it means, where it's the worst, where they're showing some reforms, what Congress is going to do about it, and ultimately what you can do about it. This podcast is part of the Ricochet Network. Go to ricochet.com, find other podcasts, join the community, get involved in the conversation, read commentary, and have access to other offerings as well. You can also find this show wherever else you get your podcasts. We always appreciate if you go to iTunes and leave us a review. Tell others about the podcast as well. Jason Pye, welcome to Closer Consideration. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jay, thanks for having me. Uh, so as I do with uh, with shows where I am like kind of like friends with the with the guests, Pi is one of those guests. Um, so I, I know quite a bit about him, including and I will tell you all about his love of Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. <laughs> that's kind of an that's kind of an inside joke. In 2016, we had uh, we had uh, like we were making up fake memes about Jason and and Senator Cotton running for president together. So I I think when we when we talk to Jason here, you'll get a sense of why he's actually not a very big fan of of Tom Cotton. But uh, uh, not at all. <laughs> see, there you go. He's not shy about it. Not shy about it. Okay, so Jason, we're going to be talking about civil asset forfeiture, and yeah. it's funny. It's it's an issue that um, I think a lot of people know what it is. You know, they hear it, they know what it is, they understand what it is, but they don't really know too much about it or or the legality behind it and, you know, the the um, you know, the, the problems that it causes. And I um, so just kind of like give a give a layman's explanation of what civil asset forfeiture is. Sure. Civil asset forfeiture is the process by which the government, typically law enforcement, can seize your property uh, without charging you, convicting you, let alone arresting you uh, of a crime is based on the mere suspicion that property or cash is connected to some sort of illicit activity. Um, And then they subject it through civil forfeiture proceedings, which means going through civil court, um, presenting a case against the property, this legal fiction that property is somehow uh, guilty uh, of some sort of a crime. Uh, you have to, and the burden of proof falls on the property owner. So they have to go in and claim the property and then pay lawyers fees and fight to get their property or cash back. 
Um, that is that is the layman's terms. The history of it uh, is is actually quite old. It goes back to sort of medieval, the medieval and rem uh, forfeiture, like the belief that um, uh, the belief that is that some sort of spirit possesses this property and therefore it's illegal and that's why it's connected to this this activity. It actually uh, comes from more maritime law to enforce uh, embargoes and to force trade policy. Uh, things like that. Uh, it was used during the early part of the, the uh, 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 during the colonies to enforce trade embargoes, uh, to enforce restrictions, so on and so forth. Uh, it was prominently used during the era of prohibition, um, which none of us are fans of. Uh, and then it's 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 been given. Uh, it was given like this very aggressive life um, in the early 1980s with with when co- Congress started passing legislation to deal with the, the very significant um, uh, violent crime problem and organized crime problem and drug problem that the uh, United States was experiencing. So um, that's kind of the gist of it. States. So there's federal forfeiture law and then there's state forfeiture law. Um, so uh, each state has their own. You have 50 50 plus the District of Columbia states that have um, their own forfeiture laws. And then you have this federal uh, regime as well. Some states are better than others. Uh, Federal uh, forfeiture law is actually really bad, uh, but some states have actually gotten it right. And and so, um, I mean, the key word in civil asset forfeiture is the word civil, is that the authorities don't operate under criminal proceedings when they do this, which is what allows them to kind of get away with it. They sit there and say, we suspect that this money that we're taking. So it, a, a great example, a very uh, recent example was a retired Marine. Uh, I think he was in, I can't remember where he was now, in Texas or Arizona, somewhere out there. And he was driving, got pulled over, had $80,000 in cash on him, which is not a crime. Having right. a ton of cash is not a crime. That's right. But they use civil asset forfeiture laws to take his money today because what you, you having cash simply by having by rote of having so much cash, this is suspicious. And yep. so we can take it just in case you're actually engaging in something illegal. Um, yep. Now, his story became a national story at the Washington Post. And so he was able to get his money back. But for a lot of people, it's not like that. And so like you mentioned the whole idea of getting it back, but what happens? So let's say it's, it's just somebody with only who only has $3,000. And they get that taken. I mean, what is the likelihood? This is a situation where I think, and, and you can go into this and correct me if I'm wrong, but where somebody might say, they go, they talk to a lawyer, a lawyer says it's going to cost X to get the money back. And then they sit there and say, well, it's going to cost me $2,800 to hire a lawyer. I've only got 3000 and I'll be out 200 bucks anyway. I might as well just let them keep it. Is that kind of like what happens? Yeah, no, that 100% happens. There's a really great, um, there's a really great report put out by the ACLU of Pennsylvania. And I know uh, some of your listeners may not be huge fans of the ACLU, but they do good work in, in, in this in criminal justice areas, as well as, uh, you know, surveillance reform, things like that. Uh, but there's a really good report they put out several years ago that highlighted how law enforcement was basically going into these uh, predominantly, you know, poor neighborhoods and communities of color, uh, seizing like two, $300. And you're not going to go and you're not going to file a claim against two or $300 because fighting to get that money back is going to be more, uh, cost more than the you know than what you'd be getting back, so there, there there's certainly a cost benefit and uh, that that it has to be weighed. Now you do have some, you do have some uh, more extreme cases like um, there's so we think of this in terms of law enforcement pulling someone over uh, and and then claiming that there's this large sum of cash there and that they're going to seize it because they think it's illicit activity. But there's also in the past there's been what we call. Um, 
uh, like uh, structuring cases where the IRS will come in and seize entire bank accounts because someone was uh, either um, depositing under $10,000 to look like they were structuring their deposits to escape the Bank Secrecy Act's uh, $10,000 reporting threshold, or they consistently uh, deposited more than $10,000. And mm-hmm. um, there's a congressman, Andrew Clyde from, from Georgia. He represents sort of the Athens area. Um, go dogs. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. Uh, not after the national championship game, uh, but um, who he had, I think, I think it was like under a million dollars or 900 something thousand dollars that was seized from him because his, either his teller, his insurance policy, I can't remember, either the bank teller told him he needed to, or the, the, his insurance policy only covered deposits of up to $10,000 per day. I don't remember the specifics of it, uh, but they came in and they seized, you know, this large sum of money from, from, from him. He eventually uh, got it back. Uh, he eventually had to give up, he gave up $50,000, which he called a tactical retreat, but eventually got the money back. Uh, as he as he fought the IRS, but there are uh, there are plenty of examples of people who don't who absent some pro bono representation through like the Institute for Justice, for example, or or another organization like that, who who just simply have to walk away. And for some of these people, I mean, there's a there's there are case there's case after case after case where people like this Marine you mentioned who are traveling with their life savings. Maybe they're going to go buy. Uh, maybe they're going to put a down payment on their house and they don't trust banks. I mean, there's plenty of legitimate reasons people would want to carry around that large sum of cash. There's a great example from, this was, this is probably a decade old um, down in South Georgia, a guy was, I think he had $12,000, $14,000 on him and he was going to put a down payment on a home uh, and they pulled him over. They seized the cash. There's a, there's another one out of, I think uh, Stanton, Virginia, where a gentleman was um, going to buy some new um, kitchen equipment for his restaurant, he was he was expanding his restaurant, and they seized his money from him. He they they took it. He ended up losing his restaurant in the process of that. By the way, so there's there are all these cases where people who are who are actually injured, but uh, by these by these acts uh, these these acts of law enforcement taking this money. I'm not, when I'm talking about law enforcement, I'm not just talking about police officers or sheriffs. I'm talking about prosecutors. Uh, people who people who go after this money, there's a and, and yeah, I mean it's 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 really one of the most egregious forms of of government overreach. When when I was at and prior to joining the Due Process Institute in March of last year, I was at Freedom Works uh, for about six and a half years, and I, I ran our criminal justice program in addition to you know doing other issues like healthcare, taxes, and and many other things. Um, but whenever we would talk about this, people couldn't believe this was happening in the United States, and. Um, you know, I don't watch, I don't watch a lot of political TV, uh, frankly, because of just the political climate and how awful everything is these days. <laughs> um, I haven't watched cable news in like eight years, and I think I'm a better person for it. Um, but um, there's a really great segment on last week with John Oliver where he talks about civil assets. Just like a really, it's like they frame it like a law and order type uh, type oh, situation. Okay. And you can, I think you can find it on YouTube. Just Google. Um, Google John Oliver uh, civil asset forfeiture and it should come up where you can just watch how you can watch this because like how they do it. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's, it's meant to be funny, but it's tackling a serious issue because they come in and they basically like arrest the home. They put handcuffs on the home. And when you look at these civil asset forfeiture cases, we're not talking about um, it's not brought it. Like I said, I said this before, it's not brought against the person it's brought against the property. So when you see 
a forfeiture case, there's a great one. You mentioned Texas, Texas versus one gold crucifix. That's an example of a civil asset forfeiture case. Uh, you know, the United States versus $187,000 in United States currency. That's an example of a civil asset forfeiture case. There was one that's like, I, I don't, I'm not getting the exact number right, but it's United States versus, uh, you know, 5,000 shark fins, for example. I mean, those are the, that's the, the silliness of this. And, you know, like I said, some states have gotten this right. They've realized the problem. They've made their civil asset forfeiture laws more protective. I've had the opportunity to work on some of those, including New Mexico, which completely eliminated civil asset forfeiture. To have your property um, subjected to forfeiture in, in New Mexico, you have to be convicted of a crime. There is no civil asset forfeiture in, in New Mexico now. Um, uh, the same is true in Montana. You have to be convicted of a crime. Um, Missouri, you have to be convic convicted of a crime. Uh, some states have <clears throat> maybe not gone. Ohio is another one. You have to be convicted of a crime. Some some states haven't gone that far and just raised their uh, evidentiary standards and civil court from what we call a preponderance of the evidence, which is basically like a 51 percent likelihood that the, the, the claim against that the claim was connected to some sort of illicit activity to clear and convincing evidence, which is the highest threshold in civil uh, civil court. It makes all, And the burden of proof has been shifted in a lot of these states, if not many. Well, if not all these states that have done civil asset forfeiture to, uh, to, to, to the government. So we're seeing, we've seen a lot of progress in, at the state level, so much so that I think about half the states have, have done something on, uh, in terms of civil asset forfeiture reform. Uh, and, you know, again, um, these states are some of the reddest and some of the bluest in the country. You mean talking about Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, Iowa, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, I can keep going. I mean, you know, and it's, you know, it, we're seeing a lot of great things happen, but federal level, it's been slow, uh, you know, to get and there's, something done. And there's a, there's a, and I, I, if, if this doesn't seem to be an issue that uh, you, it, it kind of doesn't, you, it doesn't divide across partisan lines the way other ones do. There's usually a lot of agreement on reforming these laws and a lot of disagreement, and it's a bunch of them. And that's because this is a pretty lucrative uh, endeavor, uh, particularly for states. And, and, and maybe you can explain a little bit more about this, but I understand there's some kind of, I don't know if it's, I, I assume it's a federal law that, so if you get pulled over by a state trooper and, and the, 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 Marine case, the Marine case was actually in Nevada. So if you get pulled over by a state trooper and they contact a federal agency, like the DEA or something like that, then yeah. the state troopers, the, 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 the state gets to keep 80% of whatever it is that they, they seize. Is that right? How does that work? I mean, there, 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 there's the state level, there's a state side of that too. So you don't, you state law enforcement doesn't just get money through what we call adoption by a federal agency. Adoption, that's the one. So I'm talking, if, yeah. if, if, if they keep it, if, if they decide to go through state law, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if they decide to go through state law, in many states, if uh, they can keep up, they can keep a portion of the proceeds. In some states, it's up to 100% of the proceeds. Um, uh, New Mexico eliminated the, what we call the profit motive. Um, uh, at the federal level, if uh, state and local law enforcement wants to go through the federal, the federal government, they can have a federal agency like the DEA or the FBI adopt the property and subject it to federal forfeiture law, and uh, at which point they could get up to 80% of the proceeds. Uh, now, that may be going to one law enforcement agency, or it could be going to different law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, several of them, uh, but it would be up to 80% of the total sum uh, of the, of the proceeds of the sale, sale of the property or, or um, a collection of the property. So uh, that's, that's in some States, thankfully have gotten rid of that. Um, Ohio being one of them that we call it the federal loophole. Uh, Ohio closed the federal loophole. There's a certain, well, I shouldn't say closed it. Uh, they they limited it. Uh, like I think in Ohio, if you're if if a law enforcement agency wants to use adoption uh, through the federal level, they have to have I think a, I think the property or money has to be worth at least a hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. And so some states have done some states have done um, uh, fifty thousand. Some states have done lower thresholds. Hundred thousand. Ohio is one of the, the biggest ones. Um, I think New Mexico got rid of it entirely. Uh, but it's been a while. The New Mexico law passed back in like 2015, so I don't remember. I don't remember at all. No, fifty thousand for New Mexico. I actually have it written right here. Um, <laughs> I, I pulled up a paper I wrote when I was still at Freedom Works. It's mm-hmm. called "From High From High Seas to Highway Robbery," uh, and it was uh, we we updated it at the end of 2019. So if you want to be interested in the topic, you can look at it. And I've, I've listed a lot of the state efforts uh, uh, down there. So Arizona does seventy five thousand. California is 40, Colorado's 50, DC, it's completely prohibited. Um, Ohio's 100,000, New Mexico's 50, Nebraska's 25, and Maryland's 50. So they have to at least have that that much to do um, to, to exploit the federal loophole. But oh, yeah. those those states all have protective, and the District of Columbia all have more protective civil asset forfeiture laws, which generally makes that kind of like a non-issue. Not saying it's not, not a completely non-issue, but not as much as say Georgia, which has not passed any comprehensive civil asset forfeiture law. Okay. And let's talk a little bit about the possible um, you know, aspects of this that, that um, Kim Williamson wrote a great piece about civil asset forfeiture several years ago. Uh, and he did it in his usual Kevin Williamson way. And he said, you'll be less than surprised to learn that this has produced some serious abuses and the law enforcement tool intended to be used against uh, send a millionaire cartel bosses inevitably ends up being used to harass and loot nobodies in East Funky. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so I, I looked up, uh, I, I'm, you know, I lived in Florida for 14 years and Bob Vogel, who was the sheriff of Volusia County down there for some time in the, uh, in the early to mid nineties set up what he called an elite drug squad. And basically, they would be pulling over cars on I-95, which, yes, absolutely, is a major, uh, or at the time anyway, was a major route uh, for for drug dealers and drugs coming into Miami and they take them up to New York. But ironically, they said there were 262 seizures, only 63 resulted in criminal charges. And of the nearly 200 cases where no evidence of illegal activity existed, 98% 98% of those pulled over were minorities. Um, do, yeah. is, does, is it something that impacts minorities more than, 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 than white people? Um, if you look at like that ACLU report from out of Pennsylvania, yeah. I mean, because those were predominantly, the, those seizures were happening predominantly in communities of colors, communities, communities of color. Uh, that does seem to be the trend. Certainly Senator Paul has made, has Senator Rand Paul, who's a big proponent of civil asset forfeiture reform has made those, those same statements. Uh, I have, this is not a particular area of civil asset forfeiture. I've spent a lot of time on, mm-hmm. uh, because I think wrong is wrong, uh, no matter who it's happening to. 
but it, it's, it certainly seems the, the body of evidence that I have seen, and I couldn't quote statistics for you, but the body of evidence I have seen says, yes, it's predominantly minorities who are impacted by civil asset forfeiture. Um, uh, then, yeah, I mean, that's, that just seems to be kind of, kind of where it's at, but look, I mean, there's a couple quick things I wanted to point out in terms of how this is viewed by, by law enforcement. And, and I want to state here, my dad was a police officer. Mm-hmm. He served, he served in city of forest park, Georgia. He served in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. He retired in 1986 because he had a disability, um, from his time in Vietnam. Uh, so I'm not beating up on law enforcement here. I think there are bad apples, uh, who, who, uh, who exploit this process and, and uh, this tool. Um, and I think it's one that needs to be significantly reined in. Uh, I would prefer to see criminal conviction required for any forfeiture proceeding. But there are, to give you an idea of some of those bad apples, I mean, there's a there's a video on, I think, I think I saw on YouTube, uh, there's a sheriff from Columbia County, Missouri, who called forfeiture proceeds pennies pennies from heaven. He said, you know, it's it's nice it's money. It's nice money to have. It gets you a new toy, you know, when you want one. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the city attorney of Las Cruces, New Mexico, who talked about how forfeiture was so great because they could be czars. They could own the city because they could seize cars. They could seize homes. They could seize anything they wanted just based on the you know, mere uh, accusation of, of uh, some sort of a connection to illicit activity. I mean, this is, this is largely how it's viewed. Um, I shouldn't say large. This is how it's viewed by some, by, by many law enforcement uh, um, uh, officials out there. And, and that's that sort of perception or uh belief has created a lot of distrust in communities of color. And when we pushed, when we pushed civil asset forfeiture reform in Michigan, 2015, 2016, um, we actually had law enforcement support uh, for that. Now that didn't, that wasn't uh, that, that initial bill or bills, there were, I think seven of them um, did not go as far as what they have now. They've gotten, they have a criminal conviction requirement now. But this one increased the evidentiary standard. And one of the reasons that the, the, this particular uh, Michigan-based uh, police union supported it was because of the need to restore trust in, in, in certain communities around the state. Um, you know, and, and I, think, I think that's, I, I think there is, there is a, legitimate, um, a legitimate skepticism there. Um, and, and I'm not saying that because it's, you know, the things we've seen the last two or three years, um, but it's the belief that these communities are, are easy to pick on because they're underrepresented and um, there's not a lot of opportunity there. So what, what then do you say? And I've seen people say this and say, well, yeah, I could, okay. I can understand maybe in the you know, 20, 30, 40, you know, anytime before like the, the, the mid to late 2000s, you, you might have cash because somebody may not have access to a credit card. And of course, if you had to buy something that was going to cost a lot of money and might cost thousands of dollars, you may not, have, they may not accept a check. And so you had to use yeah. cash. Yeah. But now you have, uh, you know, you can get an account or you can do PayPal or you can do Venmo or you could do any of these things. It's like we, 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 you know, hardly anybody ever carries cash anymore. So why can't people just convert to doing it electronically and avoid these kinds of seizures? Some people just don't like banks. I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't have a bank account until I was 23 years old. I mean, I, I hated banks. I still hate banks. 
sticks. You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's just something about like, I would rather have, I, but at the same time, now that I'm older, I'm in my forties now. It's like, I, I hate having cash. I hate, you know, the, you know, <laughs> but I say that as I'm looking at $75 sitting on my desk, uh, that I, but, um, in cash, uh, no less, but, but no, I mean, you know, some people just don't like banks. Some people just don't, don't have a, don't have that trust, particularly after the great recession, when, you know, when the economy collapsed because of, uh, because of, uh, malinvestment, one, one part of our economy. Um, right. uh, you know, I, I don't, I can't say, I, I can't say I blame them. Um, right. you know, and, and not everybody's the same way. And let's also remember, there's no law, as you said earlier, Jay, there is no law against carrying cash, even large sums of cash. There is right. no law against it. Uh, you know, so, it's 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 more of one of these things like how dare you my question to people who would ask that or who would say that is like how dare you presume to think that everybody's just like you right and also it's it's not because it isn't just cash you know they can seize property as well i mean didn't right. you you mentioned a case something texas versus the crucifix one gold crucifix one gold <laughs> crucifix yeah so somebody could not have any cash, might have a bunch of gold chains on or something like that. Can the cop seize that as well? I mean, is that is that your car? Okay. Your car? Yeah, your car. Your I mean, they can if they think my, you know, if they think if my iPhone was paid for with illicit substances or, or illicit activity, selling drugs, whatever, they could seize my iPhone. Let's let's actually let's look at uh, one of the most recent cases that that dealt with this. Now, this was it was a civil asset forfeiture case, but it ended up at the Supreme Court being a um, being an Eighth Amendment fines and fees case and it incorporated the Eighth Amendment to the states. Uh, so this this uh, guy, uh, Tim, it was Thames versus Indiana. Uh, he, he was injured on the job. I think he broke his foot or, or something like that injured on the job. He was given, um, he was given very powerful painkillers to deal with the pain. Once the painkillers ran out, he turned to heroin, uh, ended up dealing some heroin. I think he sold about $40 worth of heroin to someone. I think it was a, a, a UC or, a a, 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 a cop who was undercover, um, or yeah, confidential informant, excuse me, CI or a cop who was undercover. Um, so he, um, they seized a, his Land Rover. Uh, it's like a forty-five thousand dollar Land Rover. Now, he paid for that Land Rover through the through the proceeds of his father's life insurance. Wow! But they still seized it, claiming that it was connected to illicit activity and and therefore subject to forfeiture proceedings. He eventually won the, the Supreme Court. I I it was either unanimous or close to unanimous case. May have been seven to two. I don't remember off the top of my head. This was uh, decided in uh, twenty, I think early twenty twenty, or if I recall correctly. Um, and the the world has changed so much since then, Jay. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, but the, and they incorporated the Eighth Amendment against the states, which basically said that uh, the Eighth Amendment no longer applies only to federal citizenship; it applies to state citizenship as well. So, uh, so law. We're still kind of like waiting to see what the impact of Thames is going to be. Uh, when it comes to some of these excessive fines and fees that um, which basically what forfeiture proceedings are is, or, or what, what civil asset forfeiture is, it's an excessive fine and fee. But we're still waiting to see kind of what the impact of, of that's going to be um, in the long term. And, and look, um, we have I think we have a friendlier court um, when it comes to civil asset forfeiture than we have in the past. Certainly, Justice Clarence Thomas is has. Uh, has been out there saying that uh, uh, that they 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 you know look for the right case type thing. Um, 
He's spoken out against the abuse of civil asset forfeiture. Justice Gorsuch seems to be very good on the subject as well. I think the, I think at least some of the progressive just, justices would be amenable. Um, but, you know, there would have to be some precedent overturned as well, uh, given the court has not always um, gone like they did in Thames in the past, including Justice Thomas, who kind of reversed himself in, in the Thames case. But uh, going back to the, the 90s and the Benes case, uh, but it, it's, you know, I think that certainly the appetite of the court is there. Um, we just need the appetite in Congress and, and some of these state legislatures who have not acted on civil asset forfeiture to kind of get a collective fire let, let under their rear ends to get moving. And where, like, so what would you say is like the percentage of those in the House and the Senate that are f- friendly towards the, the idea of reforming civil asset forfeiture? So it's like, is it 20 percent, 30 percent? What do you think? I think more broadly, well, I think it depends on what kind of reforms we're talking about. Okay. Um, so I think there, I think not, you know, I mean, you've been around long enough to know that not every bill is created equals. There are some right. bills that go, that go too far and there are some bills that, that don't go far enough. Uh, I think it depends on what we're talking about specifically. Uh, but what I can tell you is um, in each of the last three or four years, uh, the House has passed uh, riders, appropriations riders to the Commerce, Justice and Science appropriation bill to prohibit adoption, um, which is a good thing. And those have all passed by voice vote. There haven't been roll call votes on those things. Uh, so that's that's you know, that's a positive development. Um, so but is that going to all universe if they bring a bill, if the House Judiciary Committee marks up a bill and brings it to the floor, are we going to see unanimity? Probably not, but I got I to gotta imagine that there are probably 300 votes around for that. And let me give you a really good example of um, the only forfeiture bill, to my knowledge, that has been introduced in the House in this Congress um, is called the FAIR Act. It's the Fifth Amendment Integrity Rest- uh, Restoration Act. And that piece of legislation uh, has 18 Republican co-sponsors, has 15 Democratic co-sponsors. Uh, and it, it boasts the co-sponsorship of both the chairman and ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. So that's Jerry Nadler and Jim Jordan, who who probably don't like each other very much. <laughs> uh, if, if you've watched any House Judiciary Committee hearings this year at all, you know these guys fight like all the time. Uh, but, it, you know, it's got some other great co-sponsors like Carly Armstrong, Nancy Mace, Tom McClintock, uh, Andrew, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's on the bill. Uh, so you have you have AOC. In uh, on a bill with Louis Gomer and Jim Jordan, which you don't see every day. Right. Um, so there's there's a lot of, and they also had a hearing um, in uh, uh, an oversight and ref- uh, well, excuse me, House House Oversight and Reform Committee. I forget what it's called now. Yeah, Oversight and Reform. Uh, used to be called House uh, Oversight and Governmental Reform, Government Oversight and Reform. Um, but they had a hearing in a subcommittee in uh, uh, just last month, and it went really, really well. Uh, so, you know, uh, and you had some great questions, but, you know, that bill, it does it does a lot of things we like. You know, it, it increases the evidentiary standard of clear and convincing evidence. It, it puts the burden of proof on the federal government. It makes a lot of administrative uh, or changes to how it, uh, the administration of forfeiture proceedings are handled. One of the things that's a big sticking point in this era um, is that it takes away the profit motive. Now, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but it puts Republicans in a really tough position because the left has been on this defund the police narrative uh, and which has you know really come back to 
to bite them in the rear end, mm-hmm. but they've been on that. But this gets rid of the profit motive by directing any proceeds from the sale uh, of confiscated or permanently seized property to the treasury. So it, it's it's not that puts some Republicans in a really tough spot. It also puts some Democrats in a really tough spot too. So, but uh, but I think with this measure of bipartisan support, that's a that's uh, you know where you have you know almost an even number between the two parties. You have some of the, some of the biggest names on the left and the right on this bill, I think that's certainly helpful. So what, so, so just so we're clear, you're not an attorney, right? I am not an attorney. Okay. So I don't want to, I just want to make sure we're not dispensing legal advice here, but what's like, what's, what's practical advice you could, you would give to someone who said, Hey, I was, uh, I got pulled, I was riding, I got pulled over. I had $5,000 in cash that I was going to give to X and they took it. What's, what's the next step? For somebody like, what's the first step somebody has to take when they when their property gets taken like that? For, try to contact a criminal defense lawyer uh, and see if there's any way they can defend you, uh, defend you, and hopefully at, at at you know a reduced rate or something like that. It's going to be really hard because the lawyer is going to have going to have to put their time and energy and effort into, it, and that's going to take away from other business. Right. There are some or, there are some organizations like the Institute for Justice uh, who do engage in litigation and and uh, and. Uh, on civil asset forfeiture cases, you can always reach out to, to uh, IJ.org, the Institute for Justice, and find out if there's if they are willing to take your case or if they know someone who's willing to take your case because you may find some luck there. And what wh- what has been the reaction from other organizations and and foundations? Uh, like how, in terms of financial support, not 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 necessarily to individual cases. But the idea of civil asset forfeiture reform overall, like where where do some of the bigger foundations stand on that? Are they are they helping with that or is that not really something that they get into? I mean, I'm not sure what that landscape looks like. Uh, it, it depends. I mean, there, there, there are some there are some who who are really interested in the topic and, and will fund work on the topic uh, who will help out with with the topic. Uh, there are some who 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 say the right things but aren't they're not it's not specifically like a like a project they'll go out and fund uh but there you know there are but you you would be shocked to know a lot of that money does not come from the right uh because you know i mean especially in right now with tensions being what they are as it relates to uh uh uh, policing um Mm -hmm. it's not something that a lot of your typical conservative foundations who give money to organizations to work on uh, different issues will go out and fund. Uh, so you have to find really sort of specialized uh, folks to uh, who are really interested in the topic, or you you do have to, or you might have to convince them to get interested in the topic. And sometimes trying to convince them uh, may maybe may not be worth it. It really just depends. But um, you know there are there are people out there who are willing to fund the work and, let, and you know put energy behind the work uh, and willing to support you no matter what you do. But um, you know they're they're few and far between, unfortunately. What's the biggest obstacle to 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 reform, particularly as, let's say at the federal level? Like, is it lobbying from from law enforcement agencies? Is it is it just an idea of losing money? I, I don't know. Like, this it, it, Jason and I were talking before uh, we 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 started recording, and I I told him in in the course of stuff that I was researching, I went back and I found a, a judiciary committee hearing from 1996 at Henry Hyde was leading and talking and, and, and interviewing witnesses, <clears throat> excuse me, who had been victims of civil asset forfeiture, including a, yeah. a guy who owned a landscape business. He, he made the mistake of the mistake, quote, 
quote uh, scare quotes of buying a plane ticket with cash, which matched him as a profile of a drug courier. And he went flew to Houston from Nashville. And since he had nearly $10,000 in cash that he was going to buy, remember this is 1996. There was no PayPal. And there, there, there wasn't uh, what is it? Uh, Zelle or anything like that. And he might not have had <laughs> no, no Venmo, no Venmo. And so no he had Venmo. cash to buy the stuff that he was going to buy for his nursery. And they seized his money. He eventually wound up getting it back. But again, it's the whole idea. It's like, who knows what happened to this man's business and the amount of time that, that took him to get his money back. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you mentioned Henry Hyde, who who wrote a, a great book on civil asset forfeiture. It's actually not that long of a book. I think you can. Uh, I think I got my copy used on Amazon years ago. Mm. Um, I think it was a Christmas gift, actually. Now that I think about it, uh, but you know, he was the in 2000 Congress passed the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act. We call it CAFRA, um, and it was supposed to. The way it passed the House is actually out. It does a lot of things that's similar to the Fair Act. Uh, increases the evidentiary standard, flips the burden of proof to the to the government, um, but that bill was was largely gutted over in the Senate, and and you know abuse of forfeiture did sort of decline in years after uh, that bill was passed before it shot back up. Um, you know, I think I read a I think the Post, the Washington Post, had a really good article several years ago talking about how uh, the number of the amount of money seized through forfeiture uh, exceeded the amount of money or the, the losses from burglaries or something like that. Um, so it, it's it, the, the obstacle there, there are, there are obstacles for sure. Uh, the, the obstacles range from, uh, the things we, the things we, we really know like law enforcement opposition, uh, and that exists at both the state and federal level. Uh, you have, uh, Look, some of these law enforcement groups have been really helpful to us on bills like the Equal Act, uh, which I've been working on a lot this year, um, and that's dealing with sort of change, uh, proposed change to crack cocaine sentencing law. Mm-hmm. Um, like the National District Attorneys Association, great partners. The Major Cities Chiefs Association, great partners. Um, but you know, groups like the National Sheriffs Association, the, the Fraternal Order of Police, actually the um, the then Executive Director or President. <clears throat> of the Fraternal Order of Police, Chuck Canterbury, testified in April of 2015 against civil asset forfeiture reform. They actually had a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee on the topic uh, back then. Um, And he was very clear he was opposed to any changes in law. Um, So your your chief opposition is going to come from them. At the state level, it's the same. Georgia passed a, they didn't pass any substantial changes in state civil, civil asset forfeiture law and several when they passed reform back in 2015, uh, what they did was heighten transparency and reporting. That's really all they did. Um, but when they passed that bill, members of the Georgia Sheriff's Association were sitting in the gallery looking down on members of the legislature as they were taking that bill up. Uh, so some of it can be intimidating. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so that's one very big problem. The other, the other problem is there's. Well, there are two other problems. One, uh, the political atmosphere uh, in in Congress right now across the country, but especially in Congress. Um, and then two, um, or the, 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 the I guess the third problem would be um, <laughs> is is sort of this kind of plays into the law enforcement angle, but um, it's a little bit different. We have seen, you know, uh, we've seen the last two years of a, a, a spike in violent crime. We saw a large spike in murders in 2020. Um, 
but well, I guess it's still even one year, but I guess because in 2019, I think they continue, they went back down. So in 2020, we saw the spike in, in murders and spike in violent crime. We haven't seen the numbers for 2021 yet, um, but we expect it to largely be the same. But violent, so violent crime went up on in total by 5%. Mm-hmm. And then homicides went up by 29%. So law enforcement is going to say they need, they need this tool to continue fighting violent crime and drug crime, drug-related crime, things like that. So that's that kind of, again, plays in the law enforcement angle. But I would say that those are those are all of our problems right now. And look, you're going to have politicians who, who don't get this, who don't understand this, who don't understand um, they're going to hear from their sheriffs or law enforcement back home, and they're not going to want to touch this issue. Um, you have some uh, members of the House and Senate who, regardless of what we're proposing or what we're trying to do, who are going to oppose it just because they view it as criminal leniency. That's the line that's become so popular amongst um, some of these clowns uh, like Tom Cotton. Um, but, um, you know, with the, with the group, the group we have in the house, it being so ideologically diverse and certainly over on the Senate side, it's been ideologically diverse too, because you have Rand Paul and Mike Lee and who are often on the Rand Paul runs the same bill over on the Senate side uh, with Mike Lee's always on it. You have, you have um, Democrats who are on that bill. The, the bill hasn't been reintroduced in this Congress yet. I'm still waiting on Senator Paul's office to do it. But um, you know, but political will is 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 a problem in, in trying to get that get this you know these efforts to move forward. I, w- I would love to see a press conference with AOC and Louis Gomer talking about civil <laughs> <safety> for sure. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, same. Uh, you know, I uh, mean, it's and, and look, uh, you know, AOC that that subcommittee hearing I mentioned over in oversight and reform. I mean, AOC was on the subcommittee, and so was Andy Biggs. Who I mean, those they could not be more different. Right. And, you know, and they they seem to have some agreement between them. It was a very civil. It was one of the more civil hearings I've watched this year. Or this Congress, I should say. Yeah, and it probably wasn't televised because um, there was no. But you can stream it, right? But there was no viral clips that you can get from that kind of thing. So it's like yeah. that's the kind of thing. It's not going to make its way around social media, which is unfortunate, or onto the cable news, which neither of us really watch. No, Katie Katie Porter wasn't sitting there with her whiteboard so she could make a <laughs> make a point. I don't think she's on. I don't think she's on the subcommittee anyway. But nobody had a whiteboard so they could sit there and and, and make and, and you know perp walk the uh, the witness. All right. So so one of the things that I do when we start wrapping up on on, on show and um, this one is kind of interesting. I'll, basically, what I do is I ask each guest a question based upon the subject that you're talking about. Like <clears throat> so. When it comes to the average person, you know, sitting here might be listening to this who wants to kind of get involved and wants to stay on top of this. What is one like what's one of the what's small something the average person can do to obviously visit your website and and get involved there, but like get more involved in like in a tangible way to uh, to kind of to kind of move this forward so that that way there, there can be more of these reforms. Well, you definitely want to check out our website, mm-hmm. iduprocess.org. Um, and we're also on Twitter, we're also on, fa- also on Facebook. Um, you can check us out, all the work we do at Due Process Institute. <clears throat> the best thing you can do as, as a regular citizen is to, um, is to contact your state representative, your state senator, and ask them to, if your state has not already done reform, to, to, do, to do civil asset forfeiture reform. If you want to find out if your state has done reform, you can try to find that 
paper I wrote when I was at FreedomWorks called From, From High Seas to Highway Robbery, or you can check out the Policing for Profit report from the Institute for Justice. They actually, the Institute for Justice report actually grades states on their civil asset forfeiture law, so you can become familiar with what your state does and how they do it. Um, but if your state hasn't done reform, contact your state representative or your state senator uh, and, and ask them to introduce it or at least support it if it comes through. Call your congressman or congresswoman or call in, uh, and call your senator's offices and ask them to support reform. You want to contact their D.C.-based offices. You don't want to contact your local constituent office. You want to contact their D.C.-based offices. Ask them to co-sponsor the FAIR Act or um, introduce their own civil asset forfeiture bill. Uh, because uh, the only way we're going to be able to, to move forward uh, on on these reforms, if there's if there is push from citizens, regular people who who may not really care about the drama in D.C. I don't even I look, I work in politics in D.C. I don't even care about the drama in D.C. Uh, but what I care about is passing good policy and civil asset forfeiture reform is good policy is something we, we desperately need to be pursuing. So contact your representatives, contact your elected officials. Look, even contact your city council members your county commissioners and ask them to take action on the issue at the, at the local level. Um, ultimately, as I like to tell people, um, the government that governs closest to you is the one that is most dangerous. Mm. Your city council, your state legislature, your county commissioners, whatever form of local government you have or state government you have, you want to reach out to them and ask them to take action. Cause they're the ones, those, those, um, those government bodies are the ones that have the biggest impact on your day-to-day life. Uh, but also contact your congressmen and senators at, in Congress in Washington and ask them to, to support the effort as well. Right. Oh, one last question. Where does, where does like, do you know where the white house stands on this, the Biden administration, where, where are they on this issue? I, I don't know uh, because it hasn't come up. I mean, we, we, we have legislation introduced, yes, but nothing's come to the floor related to this topic. So they haven't issued a, a, what we call a SAP, a statement of administration policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we haven't, I haven't seen any, any efforts from the white house uh, on this particular subject. Um, that said, but I'll be honest with you, Jay. I mean, one of the things that I was during policing, the policing debate um, in 2020, one of the questions I got asked from from some surprising Republican offices is why isn't civil asset forfeiture reform a part of the police the, the Justice and Policing Act? But granted, it wasn't part of the Republican uh, J- Justice Act either. Mm-hmm. But you know, but there was there was some Republicans who were members themselves who were reaching out to me saying, "Why aren't we doing something on this too?" It's like it's a great great question. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, it's it's. <laughs> It's Biden's in a president Biden's in a really weird spot, given that he's he's his they are supporting bills like the Equal Act, for example, and they are doing some other things on as it relates to criminal justice. Congress isn't really doing much on those. I mean, we did get the Equal Act passed out of the House. We're hopefully going to see some legislative movement in the Senate on some some bills. Um, but uh, by, President Biden's in this really weird spot where he wrote, basically wrote the 94 crime bill. And I believe he's the architect of the civil asset forfeiture legislation that passed in like 84. <laughs> so uh, he's he's <laughs> it's kind of awkward for him, um, you know, but I, I would hope I would hope that if we do see some some activity on this uh, in the House or the Senate, that, that the White House would come out and support uh, support this effort. Okay. Great. All right. Jason Pye. 
Thank you so much for being on Closer Consideration. Hey, thanks for having me, Jay. It's good talking to you, man. All right, man. Take care. 